This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. Feeling the blues after all the great content from Saster Annual 2019 has come and gone? Join us in Paris for Saster Europa, coming up June 12th and 13th. Use the code FAVE15 and get 15% off just for tuning in. Up today, PagerDuty CEO Jennifer Tejada and Duo Security co-founder Doug Song. So I thought we would kick off by talking about philosophy. Uh, I think both Doug and I have found some common ground on the intentionality with which we've designed organizations in terms of the way we think about people, leadership, scale from the board to the, the culture of the types of employees that we're recruiting and how we make the experience of being part of Duo or part of PagerDuty a sort of career-making, life-changing experience. So why don't you share a little bit about your philosophy at Duo? So, so in terms of our philosophy, um, you know, we, we, we decided to build a company from the start that would really go after the largest opportunity in our space, right? And um, truth be told, I, uh, I ran from security as an industry when I, um, you know, probably two companies ago because it just gotten so crazy, so crowded, 1,200 vendors, um, a lot of customers who didn't know what was effective and they're buying stuff that they shouldn't. But we came back to it and we realized that with you know, cloud, mobile, all this kind of stuff, there was a huge opportunity for us to rationalize all that. And so the, the, the thesis we always had as, as, as a company was how do we come back and decimate basically the market, right? Can, could, could we go and, and take a lot of these companies that were building kind of one feature products and kind of roll them up, roll up that uh, value as part of a, a, a cloud-delivered platform at scale and kind of become that sales force of security? Um, and so for us, it was always sort of a mindset that we, we wanted to go and take on the industry at large, right? Not, not specific, you know, competitors, not specific, you know, markets. But that colored everything, right? From, from the very beginning, we, uh, you know, in order to do that, we, we knew that we would have to found the company on different kind of principles. And we really would take, effectively, a design kind of thesis, right, to how we'd uh, rearrange all that stuff, um, and so I think from, you know, the, the guiding principles of, of kind of what we start from, uh, we're, we're, we're always there. And it kind of led from our, our strategy and product to the, the culture, right? And, and the operations really behind how we would operate, how we would disrupt, you know, product category after product category in, in, in the entire industry to think about the consumerization of security in ways that I think in, in IT had come, you know, just ahead of us. And so that, that was kind of the, the idea behind all this. And, and for me, having you know, Duo will have been the fourth company that mm -hmm. was part of Insecurity, um, the second I've started. But the, uh, the intention was for it to be our last, right? And, and, and really think about building for the long term. Um, totally. so I don't know, what was your philosophy? Like, what, what did you see in PGD when you came? You know, you could have done a lot of things. Yeah. But what was, there, what was interesting about that? Well, I was really fortunate. When I joined PagerDuty, Alex Solomon was the founder at the time. And, you know, he had made a decision to put the company ahead of his own personal ego and interests and, and bring in a leader who could scale the business. And, you know, oftentimes when a, a new leader comes into a business, they feel like they need to fix a lot of things. They feel like they need to change a lot of things to prove that it was the right thing to do. And I just found at PagerDuty so many things about the business were going in the right direction. Like there was such a very strong foundation. I 
um, deep interest in making the lives of our users better. And in many ways, PagerDuty is like a consumer company in that regard. You, you never heard people talk about our, our company customers. You heard people talk about our practitioners, our users. So our philosophy has always been to start with the user experience and solving problems for the user and and trust that that is going to benefit the business and the company. And it means that, you know, it changes the way you think about design. It changes the way you think about culture. It changes who you invite to your summits to speak, etc. You want people that are going to resonate with the folks that are doing the work and the work that's really important. And so it wasn't so much my philosophy. It was recognizing this strength that we needed to build on that I wanted to make sure we didn't accidentally uh, hurt yeah, having a purposeful culture, I think, right? Totally. It's, it's so important because say, the things that you do when you're small, right? It, you know, I think I've heard said, you get amplified, right, as you, yeah. as you scale. Um, but they also provide the guardrails for it in so many ways. And I feel like, um, you know, as we thought about why we existed, why we brought the company together to, you know, prevent others, you know, prevent others from harm and all this kind of thing. Through all the gyrations and all the things we try, it was, it was, it was always going to be important to have, uh, again, a, a very explicit culture, right, of how we work with customers, of how we look at the business from the outside in. And I think, you know, kind of, as you referenced, do the right things by customers leading to the right things for the organization. Totally. Um, I think uh, the former coach of the 49ers, uh, before we stole your last one, Bill Walsh, I think he had had a book called The uh, Scorable Take Care of Itself. Mm -hmm. And I've always believed that to be true, right, that if you did the right things for customers and so forth, that, you know, um, all, all good would come from that. And so, um, so those kind of things, I think, writ large, have continued to carry our business in ways that, um, again, customers can connect with deeply, that you know, we, we partner authentically with them, but also written in a way where as we onboard and bring other folks into the company at scale, totally. can, can follow those trails and, and adopt that as their mission, as their purpose, in ways that uh, uh, are actually operational. Other things that we had done also to get board, our board and other uh, folks uh, in line, with, um, with our journey was to write a board report. And so I, all of you probably who have boards probably write investor updates and so forth. But for us, every six weeks, and this is something I learned from Luke and he's over at Puppet, um, we would write a board report, three to five paragraphs for every department leader of all the plans, progress, and problems in their business. And they would complain to me all the time, like, oh, do we have to do this again? You know, it's, it's, it's been a month ago. And I said, well, if you can't write to me sort of an update, and, and not just for me, but for our team, because we shared the board report with the entire company um, in basically the span of an email, then you don't actually know what you're doing. You don't actually know what you've done or don't know what you need to do. And so um, we basically share that as a Google Doc with comments enabled for a board to have conversations with us and focus then our board meetings on the two or three topics of most strategic concern. But those kind of things, you know, practices um, over time, mm -hmm. we built an entire sort of body of knowledge in practice that you know, when we onboarded new employees, when I'd interview new, new executives, I'd give them the last eight, right? Every six weeks, you know, kind of octave basis, I'd just give them basically the last uh, year's worth of history of the company, all the major successes, failures, learnings, and see how they'd react or internalize or in, and have a, a really meaningful discussion about this. Um, but it was so useful in so many ways to capture a lot of that. So other ways, like we would do board reports for us as leaders to be able to tell the company at large what we thought was important, but just as much, we needed ways to surface what was important, right, across the org um, in the opposite direction. And so one of the ways we did that was maybe a little bit different, but uh, we took it from a 
Jewish deli called Zingerman's down the street from us in Ann Arbor. Those of you. Oh yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's a force of nature. But um, anyway, Zingerman's has a, a, a cultural practice that we just stole, right? <laughs> called appreciation. So we open or close every large team meeting with three to five minutes of specific thanks, right? Thanking each other for the things that we've seen each other do that have made the team successful. And we train on how to give feedback more generally, right? Hearts, diamonds, spades, clubs. Hearts are positive but unspecific feedback. Diamonds are positive specific feedback. Clubs are unspecific critical feedback and similarly spades are specific critical feedback. And spades you always give in private, but diamonds. Diamonds we want to be surfaced in public and all the time because that's how we actually model the behavior that we want to see. And in a company that's growing at hypergrowth, where, as we say, we push decision-making down with a similar kind of decision framework, like I said, I don't care about the quality of any individual decision, but I care a lot about the quality of our decision process. You know, we, we, would, we would make sure that every decision was guided by the same thing. Is the right thing for the customer? Is the right thing for the company? Is the right thing for our community? But at the end of the day, we would never, there was no way to stay on top of all the, the right decisions that were made. Yeah. And all the things that we would need to elevate and standardize in order to scale. And so by cuts by our, our employees actually thanking each other in the very public setting, we would actually surface that in ways that we would be able to crowdsource and understand. And so, you know, half of the challenge of scale is just staying on top of what's actually happening in your own organization. And certainly things like Slack have helped. Um, even before Slack, every company. You How many Slack channels are you stocking on a given day? I have no idea. But we have more <laughs> Slack channels than people, right? And maybe my organizations are the same. Um, so it is hard to stay on top of everything. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, figuring out ways to surface kind of, uh, you know, all those nuggets of goodness, yeah. right? And again, level it up and, and make it repeatable is, is, is half the challenge of scale. You, there are a lot of challenges to scale. I think that's why this has become such a, a popular event uh, in and of itself. One of the things I think our companies had in common from an operational standpoint or have in common is the high velocity, you know, land motion, the flywheel effect in the expansion motion. And one of the things that I found when I came to PagerDuty was in an industry where we're constantly looking for best practices that we can appreciate and copy and reapply, there, there weren't best practices that we could go just steal. If we tried to bring in kind of the Oracle Splunk elephant hunting motion, it didn't work for the way our, our users who tended to be developers wanted to engage with our product. And so we really had to build our own our own model, and mm -hmm. it was a lot of experiments. We burned a lot of pancakes before we got it to sort of mm -hmm. golden brown, and we've got some of our go-to-market team here today. What were some of the biggest challenges you found in scaling that model, particularly given you're not sitting in the center of the valley, there's not 10 companies around you doing the exact same thing? Well, to be frank, I saw it sort of as a benefit because, you know, I, I joke about, you know, disaster being just a blog, but for us, that's what it was. I've never been to Sasser. None of us have been. Is this your first time to Sasser? My first time to Sasser, yeah. Let's, let's give it up for Doug <laughs> speaking at his first time to Sasser. Very happy to be here. But, uh, but I certainly read everything that yeah. Jason ever wrote. Like, that was kind of the Bible, right? We called him Brother Lemkin, right? It was we kind of referred to a lot of what we ever read there. And, all, and you know, but we all, just as much we read, like, David Cummings, we read David Kellogg, we read, you know, Tom Tenguz, we read uh, Alex Clayton. We read so much, just like venture capital, all this stuff has been demystified. It's yeah. no longer the realm of the black arts. And so that's where we sort of got a lot of our kind of grounding. Talking to a lot of other founders, right, was, was where we got the rest of it, frankly. Um, and particularly at this stage of the journey, when, when, when we were achieving, you know, big scale, 
preparing for maybe a potential entry to the public markets, all that kind of stuff. You know, guys like you just saw, right? Jeff Lawson. Oh, yeah. Amazing. So, so generous with his time um, with me, not just because of our mission connection. Uh, Samir Delakia from SendGrid, um, who I know you spent some time talking uh, totally. to as well. And um, Toby at Shopify, you know, Matt at Viva, like all these folks. Scott Dorsey out of Indianapolis and Exact Target. You know, one thing you, you, know, you shouldn't be shy about, and this is something that we've talked about totally. too, is, is about asking for help or, or reaching out right, to other founders to get some perspective. Um, and likewise, returning that call when someone reaches out to you. Yeah. Because you, you think about it, I mean, I, I remember calling Greg Schott from MuleSoft once, I had a question, he called me straight back, that's turned into monthly coffees, we compare notes all the time. You know, Lucerne, same thing. You and I, Doug, Doug emailed me, says, I'm gonna be in San Francisco on Monday. Monday's Memorial Day. I'm like, okay, well, drop off the 13-year-old at David's Tea, and we sit down and, you know, we, we start talking about our businesses, but it is, no one can know or understand the pressure that a CEO is under because it's not just about work, right? It's also your family, it's your board, it's your customers, it's your investors, etc. And so that bond that I think sort of naturally develops is a really important one and not one that everybody knows is out there and available. Yeah, it's a lonely job and, uh, you know, mental health is health, right? It is very important to, you know, keep, you know, yourself in the uh, good spirits of other folks who've got your back. So when I think he came to you know us thinking about scale and building out in, in Michigan, the other half of it was the fact, the opportunity to actually do it differently. Like you say, like, yeah. all these things are inputs, but they're not directly you know tactics and strategies you can you can often apply. And so you have to be adaptable. And like for instance, tomorrow you'll, you'll see hopefully my uh, my VP of Inside Sales Jennifer Lawrence who joined Duo from a enterprise SaaS company selling just to healthcare, like big, massive healthcare, healthcare deals. And she had never done inside before, but she joined Duo working in the tutelage of my um, head of worldwide sales, yeah. uh, Jim Sib, who had just come out of the Zendesk IPO and had had plenty, right, to, to kind of shape for her, but also said, do it your way. And what's so important about that is that, you know, for companies like us, for any, any small startup, right, you, you're not better resourced, you're probably not smarter, and you shouldn't necessarily work any harder, right, than any of your competitors. But the most important thing is to learn faster and outrun anybody in terms of finding new routes of success that your competitors won't. And so what we were optimizing for, because we're the same thing, high velocity, high volume, high margin, but what's most important is that uh, we need to do that not just in terms of our commercial, you know, design, but in terms of our organizational operation yeah. and learning faster. Right, and so that's why I say like we push the decision making down. You know, we um, we needed to have sort of a commander's intent or what have you, borrowing from military analogy, which I hate doing, but but we need everyone to sort of have that north star, know what we're running toward, um, but be able to go and try lots of things until we found ways again that we could um, do things better or at least differently than our competitors would. And at the end of the day, all that kind of summed together, made for a very different customer experience and journey, right, for our market than they'd ever seen before. And that's what actually has led to kind of the larger ongoing scale for us, that it, um, the feedback loops within our business that all tie together were born sort of out of, out of a lot of efforts from our teams cross-pollinating each other, working together to find all those points of intersection, um, but again, with a grand design that we could all align to. So anyway, I, I just encourage that, you know, for those of you who might be more sort of command and control or top-down or whatever sort of leaders, that you let go a little bit. 
And you have to have ways in which, you know, it comes back and you sort of preside over it. I'm not sure if you feel well, exactly the same. I, I, like, 100%. I mean, it's yeah. funny you say that. So, PagerDuty started its journey in the DevOps community. And one of the core tenets of DevOps is to empower individuals with information so that they can make the big decisions closest to the action, right? Which is the direct opposite of command and control. You know, if you've got a customer or company that's burning because of a technology issue or an issue um, with a customer experience in an app, right? One of the challenges that happens is if you've got to float that decision through a linear ticketing platform up to a senior leader and wait for it to come down, that, that customer is gone, so are a couple hundred thousand others. And so I had to change my leadership style. I had to learn to listen to the individuals in our organization who were closest to our user community. And even when when something's going down at work and you have an incident, you know, and, and something's not working, learn the incident commander during that incident is my boss. When I come into the war room during an incident, they call it the executive swoop and poop. So <laughs> the seagull like, right flying. Yeah, exactly. Right that one. <laughs> and so, you know, just learning, like I've learned a lot from our community mm. and our employees. And, so, you know, part of that is checking your ego at the door and being open, like being open to, to the fact that everybody around you probably knows more than you do about something yeah. and, and being open-minded to that. I, I'm usually the dumbest person in the room 100%. Right, in, in, in most of my meetings. And it's the same thing coming from the, you know, where I came from, because before I did any companies, I was something of a software communist doing open source. <laughs> and in that community, right, it's all just volunteer. You you can't tell anyone what to do, but even this stage, right, this scale of our company, everyone has choices, right? There's so many great SaaS companies to go and join, so we have to offer something different. And so when we thought about, you know, the, the, the platform we're building, not of the, the technology and the product, but of the company, could we build a platform opportunity where understanding deeply every person's story arc of their career and life, you know, and how to align their opportunity, you know, our mm -hmm. needs as opportunities, what they wanted to do, we could all grow together, was the most important thing we were looking for in terms of our management style and, um, and leadership style. And so we spent a lot of time really looking for um, employees that were deeply self-aware, you know, with a lot of behavioral learning questions, like tell us the biggest misconception about you or have you. We looked for leaders who had, had a history, right, of, of traveling, um, very, traveling distances with teams that grew with them, mm -hmm. right? Because you know, there are many ways to be successful. We just chose, in, in a very intentional way, how we, how we wanted to be. And I'd say it looked a little bit more like, um, you know, to, to choose two extremes in the SaaS kind of leadership model. You know, Matt Wallach from Viva had, you know, and the Viva team had sort of one, Peter as well. And then I'd say like Godfrey from Splunk had another, right? Mm -hmm. And like Splunk was, Godfrey was like, we want folks who've been there, done that. We don't got time for this, right? Viva was like, we're gonna grow all of our leaders mm -hmm. from the inside. And, you know, on balance, we're, we were a little bit more of, the, of, of Viva than we were Splunk. But by the same, same, same token, we, we knew that there were things that we would have to have to, to, to really be able to accelerate and, and, and have, introduce the right perspectives in our company. And so while we, we weren't in Silicon Valley, we needed a little bit of Silicon Valley in us. And so we did seek out very specifically, you know, in certain roles, uh, some of that leadership that came with that experience and perspective to share. But again, you know, one of the benefits I think we had in Michigan um, versus maybe in the Valley is that there wasn't so much an echo chamber of everyone sort of seeing and reading and kind of following the exactly the same things. We had a much greater cognitive diversity of all the folks we were able to bring in and uh, arguably a greater diversity overall. What are things that you did that might have been, you know, like behavioral, right? Like defined sort of a... Yeah, I mean, one of the things I did when I first came to PagerDuty, I... Um 
I'm a little bit of an extrovert and I like to have fun and, it, and I actually have been intentional and intentional about making sure the work stays fun for me, that work is fun for our teams. We like to, we have a party or a celebration. There's a cupcake almost every day for something at PagerDuty, making sure that we never lose sight of, if you're gonna spend 80% of your waking time somewhere, you know, why are you doing that? Like when you get out in the morning, out of bed in the morning, what are you excited about? So, so we're trying to build fun and laughter and joy yeah. into everything that we do. And seeing some of the big ugly challenges as the big ugly problems as, as fun challenges that you want to tackle. So not taking ourselves too seriously because we're founded by Canadians. We're already nicer than necessary. We're almost Canadian um, in Michigan. <laughs> yeah, and I'm from Minnesota, so it's like, it's like nobody's mean at Page of Duty. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen. Uh, so I think that was a big part of it was like bringing joy into the, into the work that we do with our customers, with our users, et cetera. And then also... Um, being really explicit about what winning looks like. Yeah. So we've got company kickoff next week and yeah. we'll stand up there and we'll not just talk about what the long-term goal and what the numbers are. We're going to envision like at the end of this year, what will it feel like to be paid to duty in the end of three years? What will that feel like? What will it feel like for our users and how do we continue to dis disrupt ourselves? Yeah. Le le right? Leading your teams through change is the hardest part of this job anyway. Oh yeah. I think, Particularly you know? in hyper growth, right? Yeah. How many times have you had to, sort of change and tweak your leadership team as a part of oh, this yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there's sort been of these, growth curve. Yeah, leadership errors of, of, of any company, right? And we've talked about every year, we're, we're basically a different company. Now, we're not all different leadership, right? You know, typically we kind of have at least two years sort of span in which we kind of have a fully uh, committed and, and uh, locked uh, leadership team. But you do have to think about that stuff and, and paint the forward picture for teams in ways that they can understand yeah. and, and, and internalize the change that's to come. Because, it, yeah, and again, maybe other folks do this differently, but for me, um, I, I don't know how to tell people uh, to kind of take something if we haven't socialized yeah. a lot of and, and, and brought them in. Because I think for decisions, decisions to stick, they have to have two things, right? Clarity, but also buy-in. And, and folks have to have an understanding of how they can own a lot of those decisions, create their own commitments, and help align their efforts to them. You know, as much as leadership, you know. So I, I feel like uh, the best teams that I see really achieve that scale have a way that 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 basic kernel of of, of how that works within a team really cascades and cascades really well. And so um, you guys wear it on your sleeve. Like one thing I see, um, you know, uh, companies like yourselves or our, or our team have to do well is employer branding, is in creating a real, truly an employee value proposition, yeah. which again, my, uh, my, my former head of people, Ambrosia Vertezzi, did an amazing job of. She, she has a whole HR open source kind of movement she's kind of built yeah. with all these CHROs talking about this stuff. But more, but more and more, um, that, that, that same uh, challenge of, of how do I manage sort of a, a inbound funnel, right, of, of, of sales and marketing applies actually to talent. And you want to have talent self-select this way to you. You want to manage, basically, again, that flow um, and of ways in which you have those kind of feedback loops of what's kind of worked well and what hasn't. Um, you know, we used to ask these very interesting questions um, of, of all of our hires, you know, what, what makes you unique? Um, because what we were looking for was a cultural contribution they would bring to our company, not a cultural fit. You know, yeah. they, they need to share our values, but more than that, they need to bring something new, hopefully, that we didn't have already. Because if they didn't have that, you know, uh, 
you know, what, 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 was going to, what was going to drive the scale, yeah. right? We need those alternate sort of mental models, frameworks, um, skill sets and experiences. And so, we, you know, we built hiring practices. Um, we had, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, I remember Matt Kohler from, ben yeah. from Benchmark talking about how, you know, in hiring, maybe you take a product or product marketer um, and have them take the challenge of actually operationalizing that whole program because, you know, product marketers think this way, you know, how do I talk about the key value proposition? How do I kind of, you know, all this stuff. And so we worked really hard to operationalize those things in ways that made it completely repeatable, made it you know, inbound because that, that, that's going to be hard, you know, some of the hardest parts of, of, of scale, like finding the right people. Awesome. Well, thank you for hanging out with me today. Thank you, Jennifer. Here for Doug. Thank you. Well done. Thank you, Jennifer.